Hey everyone, welcome back to Tier Apologetics. Today I have Dr. Jonathan McClatchy. We're going to be talking about like evidentialism and religious epistemology and all, all kinds of fun stuff. He's an apologist. He's a professor. He has his website, talkaboutdoubts.com, which is in that hat right there. Um, Jonathan, welcome. How are you doing today? It's great to be here. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm super excited for this conversation and it's something that like looking at like evidentialism, it's something I haven't thought too much about. So that's why I'm like super stoked to kind of like get into this. So uh, anything you want to say, Jonathan, to, like introduce yourself so people know who you are? Uh, no, so my, so my website is jonathanmcclatchy.com. That's where you can find a lot of my essays and videos and uh, other output there, jonathanmcclatchy.com. Uh, I am uh, an assistant professor of biology at Sattler College in Boston, Massachusetts. And uh, I'm originally from the UK. I have my PhD in biology from Newcastle University. I'm also a fellow of the Discovery Institute. And I'm also... Uh, I'm also the founder of uh, this ministry, talkaboutdoubts.com, where we offer private mentoring with Christians that are struggling with doubts in regards to their faith. We have various scholars in a diverse range of disciplines uh, who are willing to do private uh, Zoom calls with Christians that are struggling with doubts in regards to their faith, or indeed ex-Christians who want to explore whether there's an honest and rational way back to faith. And so if, any, if, if anyone in the audience is interested in taking us up on that, then go check out our website, talkaboutdoubts.com, and submit a form there, and someone will be in touch. And I saw you guys did, like, your first, like, in-person conference, right? Just in, like, Michigan with, like, the McGrews and all kinds of people, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, we just had uh, our first weekend retreat. It was a private event, uh, mostly for our uh, team members. And uh, we are also planning to do a series of weekend retreats uh, for doubters offering intensive mentoring over a weekend, which will also be a closed uh, in invitation only event. And uh, I'm hoping I'm planning to do those in various locations around the country and also internationally. I'm also interested in doing a series of single day training events for pastors as well, coaching them on how to uh, engage with Christians that are struggling with doubts in their congregations. That's amazing. It's super cool. And it's amazing all the people that you have joining the team, like all kinds of like scholars and people like that are kind of like investing time into what you're doing. Um, so it's super cool. So today we're going to be talking about like religious epistemology and things like that. Um, so looking at the different views, Jonathan, I know you adhere to a view called evidentialism. So do you want to just talk about like what is evidentialism when we're looking at like religious epistemology and trying to understand like how we come to truth? Is that like the proper way of thinking about like this central question here? Yeah, so I, I'm an evidentialist, which is essentially the position that for contingent propositions, propositions that could be either true or false, the best way to go about assessing whether those propositions are true or not is to evaluate the pertinent evidence or data and find out where the balance of evidence rests. I would argue that evidentialism is essentially the natural consequence of consistent avoidance of circular reasoning. And uh, that would stand in contradistinction to other apologetic systems like presuppositionalism uh, and reformed epistemologies of presuppositionalism is essentially the perspective that uh, you need to begin with the Bible as a precondition for rationality and logic and so forth. And perhaps we can get in with, into later some of my reservations about that particular approach. Classical apologetics uh, is subtly different from evidentialism in that it uh, insists that one must, in principle, establish the existence of God using the classical arguments for theism before one can adduce arguments for specifically Christianity, such as the evidence for the resurrection and things like that. The argument, of course, would be that uh, a miracle, by definition, is an act of special, uh, is a special divine action. And so uh, you, uh, 
short of a an independent demonstration that God exists, there's no God to perform the miracle. And so it would be reasoning in a circle. That's at least how the classical apologist argues. And I have my own thoughts about that. Uh, I disagree with the classical apologist. I think you can actually start with uh, arguing for the resurrection and that itself can be evidence for God. Uh, there's also the uh, system of reformed epistemology which was developed uh, by Avon Plantinga, it's adopted by people like William and Craig, uh, which is to say that uh, that um, belief in God from that perspective is a properly basic belief, uh, and uh, one can be persuaded or convinced of the truth of Christianity wholly apart from argument and evidence by uh, the uh, inner witness of the Holy Spirit or something along those lines. Um, I also disagree with Reformed epistemology um, for reasons that we can perhaps get into. Um, but in, in terms of the biblical case for evidentialism, I think that uh, the, as, as I see it, the biblical authors, the apostles, Jesus himself, um, the prophets in the Old Testament, even Yahweh, are all evidentialists. Uh, you read, for example, in Deuteronomy 18, which gives us the test of a true prophet. How do we know that a prophet truly speaks from God, how do we know that he's not just speaking from his own initiative and speaking presumptuously? Well, we read in Deuteronomy 18, if you say in your heart, how may we know the word the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is the word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you need not be afraid of him. In other words, if you want to know whether a prophet truly speaks from God, then you um, want to look at the, the evidence. You know, Does this prophet consistently forecast the future. Or um, another example in the Old Testament is in the book of Isaiah and chapter 41, where, where we read, um, um, as God is speaking to the idolaters through the prophet Isaiah, and he says, set forth your case, says the Lord, bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you were a God, do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. And abomination is he who chooses you. And so you can see that God uh, challenges the idolaters to adduce evidence that supports the, uh, the, the reality of the gods that they claim to worship. Um, in the New Testament, you have... Um, Jesus, for instance, in Matthew 11, where he's approached by disciples of John the Baptist from prison, asking, are you the one that we've been expecting, or should we wait for another? And Jesus tells these disciples of John to go back to John, tell him what to hear and see, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, deaf hear, lepers are cleansed, and so on. In other words, go back to John, tell him about the evidence you've seen around you. And indeed, that the, the apostle John, in the, uh, the who wrote the fourth gospel, actually uses the word sign to describe the miracles that Jesus performed, because these are signs that authenticate Jesus' messianic identity. You find also uh, the apostles are, um, are, are vindicated or authenticated by miraculous signs. For example, in 2 Corinthians in chapter 12, we, Paul says to the Corinthians that the signs of a true apostle were performed in your midst. Um, and so, um, again, we, um, we, uh, we have uh, evidence of, we, we, the scriptures tell us that, ev that uh, miraculous signs are given as authenticating uh, witnesses to the ap apostolic credentials of Paul and other apostles. Um, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 17, we read that 
um, God, Paul said, speaking in Athens, says that God has set a day when he will judge the world by the man he's appointed. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Actually, the word translated assurance there is the accusative form of the Greek word pistis, meaning faith. He's given faith of this to all by raising him from the dead. And in other words, faith is something which is evidence-based. And so that's kind of, in a nutshell, the, the biblical case for taking an evidentialist approach to epistemology. Mm. So there's a lot here, Jonathan, and I'm wondering, one of the things you talked a lot about is like the biblical like data supporting like an evidentialist view of mm -hmm. things. Like you talk about how they they were told like the apostles, they're vindicated by their signs. Like you can see like through the signs that points them to like, yeah, they're like true like messengers from God and like getting to things. So do you think that like when Peter was like walking around and like doing miracles um, by the power of God and things like, like this, do you think he had something in like evidentialism in mind? Like was that something that they like consciously were aware of? Or do you think it's like more indirect? If you understand what I'm trying to say here, like what did, what did they think? Like, if we could go back and like probe the mind of the disciples, what were they thinking? With this yeah, question? I mean, I, th I, I think that they viewed these as authenticating signs. I mean, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says in chapter 12, verse 12, uh, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works, right? In other mm -hmm. words, they're, they're called signs of an apostle. In other words, they are there to authenticate the credentials of those who are purportedly apostles and paul seems to appeal to the corinthian church and and he seems to think that the corinthians can personally attest to having witnessed these miraculous signs that were performed in their midst that testify to his apostolic identity uh, so I, I do think that that was how these signs were were viewed there's also of course alluded to in the book of romans in chapter number 15 uh, where it says um where it speaks about um signs and wonders that were performed um, as well. So, um, so yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, no, I think that's great. So kind of like the idea like of the book war and of evidentialism is like the constant pointing to like signs and wonders is like the signs and the evidence of like God and his movement in the world and things like that. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. Okay. And yeah, mm -hmm. and, and also in Paul, in Romans 1 verse 20, Paul says that the, the God's, eternal nature and divine attributes are clearly perceived through what has been made so that men are anapologetous without an apologetic, without an excuse. In other words, um, Paul agrees with the psalmist in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the, glories of the, the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. In other words, when you look at nature, we see manifest evidence of God's create, cre creation, God's artistry. And I totally agree with that. I think that uh, Paul would feel very vindicated by what we now know about the uh, um, incredible evidence of the complexity of biological organisms, for example, and the, the fine tuning of the laws and constants of our universe and, uh, and so forth. So, um, yeah, I, I think the scripture through and through is heavily evidentialist in terms of its uh, prescribed epistemology. Okay. Um, anything else you want to say on like why you'd prefer like an evidentialist like way of thinking about things before we look at how it compares to other methods? Um, no, I think we've more or less summed up. I mean, I can respond to objections to evidentialism if you like, or, or we can get into those later. Mm -hmm. Well, we can do that in a minute. So mm -hmm. let's look at like first how it compares to other methods. So obviously like a very like um, common, at least online method is presuppositional apologetics, um, where it's kind of like the idea that you're going to presuppose God because he maybe is like the logical precondition for like, you know, logic or something. So like, what do you think, like, how do you think evidentialism is going to like cash out compared to like a precept view of apologetics? Yeah, so presuppositionalism basically argues that 
unless you start with biblical revelation, you lack a precondition for logic and rationality and reason itself. And I, I just don't see that. There's a number of problems with presuppositionalism, in my view. One of those problems is that it engages, of course, in circular reasoning, where you start with a conclusion and then you go seeking evidence to support that conclusion. And um, when you challenge a presuppositionalist on their circular argumentation, where they start with a conclusion, um, Answers in Genesis and other young earth creation ministries often do this, where they start with a conclusion that of not only scripture, but a particular interpretation of scripture. And then they go and try to find evidence and make it consistent with what they what they understand scripture to be saying. And when you challenge them, when you press them on this circular reasoning, what they typically how they typically respond is to say that, well, everyone needs to engage in circular reasoning. And they'd like to draw this distinction. I think it's a false distinction, but they draw this distinction between uh, a vicious circular reasoning and virtuous circular reasoning um, and the the non-vicious or the virtuous kind of circular reasoning in their view is where um, we, we, we might appeal to say um, deductive logic and uh, rules of inference and they would ask well how do you justify deduction without utilizing deduction to do so and so you have to start somewhere um, and so there has to be some level of self-referential appeal. That's how, how the argument goes. Now, the, pro one of, uh, the problem, though, is that the presuppositionalist typically equivocates between two sorts of presuppositions. There are presuppositions involving analytically true statements versus those involving content. So, for example, uh, to see this distinction, consider the statement that all bachelors are unmarried. Well, do we have to start going and interviewing bachelors to find out if they're married or not? Well, no. We can just simply analyze the constituent terms. And we find that the statement that all bachelors are unmarried is true by virtue of what we mean by bachelor and what we mean by unmarried. To be a bachelor is to be unmarried. Um, and statements like 2 plus 2 equals 4 or A is not non-A seem to me to be true in that sense. So 2 plus 2 equals 4 is true by virtue of what we mean by 2 plus equals and four. The statement that A is not non-A is true by virtue of what we mean by A and what we mean by non-A. However, a statement like Christianity is true or that God has revealed himself in the person of Christ and through the Jewish and Christian scriptures, that statement is more akin to a proposition like all bachelors are unhappy, which is a contingent proposition. It could be true, but it also could be false. We can't just analyze the constituent terms. We actually have to go and start interviewing bachelors to find out whether they're happy or not. And we'd never arrive at 100% certainty in the affirmative because we might have missed a bachelor somewhere. So um, that that's an important distinction to make. And so um, when you understand that Christianity is, is a contingent proposition, it's not an analytically true proposition, I, I think that the attempts of the presuppositionalists to justify their circular reasoning uh, break down. There's also another problem, which is that the presuppositionalist never informs us of which what what are the course what is the core set of propositions that are a necessary precondition to rationality itself. Right? If we were to take away, say, the virgin birth or the Trinity or um, the Book of Jude or um, the Book of Micah, what have you, from the canon, or um, yeah, it, I mean, at what point do you lose the precondition for rationality? And the presuppositionalist is never clear about, about that. Um, there's also the related problem of 
what I call progressive the pro progressive revelation problem, which is to say, imagine you're a first century Jew living at the time the New Testament is being written, and a Christian comes up to you to try to explain the gospel, and um, and you ask them, okay, so how do I know that Jesus really is the Messiah, the promised Messiah from the Hebrew Bible? And you wouldn't be very impressed if they told you, well, actually, you just have to presuppose this. In fact, it's a precondition for rationality and logic itself, um, mm -hmm. because the, the New Testament is just new revelation that's being given then. And you, you didn't need to know that um, hitherto in order to have a precondition for rationality and logic and so forth. Uh, Presuppositionalists also have a tendency to equivocate between ontology and epistemology. So often uh, they will make an argument that God is... Um, ontologically necessary for reason and so forth. What they ought to have done, though, is make an argument that God is epistemologically necessary for reason and so forth. So, for instance, um, oxygen is ontologically necessary for me to communicate with you right now, but it's not epistemologically necessary. I don't need to. I don't need to consciously be aware that I'm using oxygen to communicate in order to do so. Um, and so, yes, if, if God didn't exist then we couldn't reason. We also couldn't eat strawberries because we wouldn't exist. <laughs> there would be nothing uh, in, an, in an atheistic universe. Um, but um, it's not necessary for us to know that God exists in order to utilize logic and reason and so forth. So that's another problem. Another problem with presuppositionalism, though, is that uh, if God is um, a necessary precondition for logic, and, and specifically the God of the Bible is a necessary precondition for logic, then it follows necessarily that God has a probability of one. God has to exist in the same way that the laws of logic have to exist. There's no possible world in which the laws of logic fail to exist. That, of course, means that you can't appeal to evidence in support of Christianity. A lot of people like to play a move where they'll say, well, I'm a presuppositionalist, but I also like evidence. Um, no, you can't do that because if the proposition that Christianity is true has a probability of one, evidence becomes irrelevant. There's no amount of evidence that can change the, probabil the, the probability of a proposition that has a, a, a probability of one. And so um, that, that's, that's also a problem. You can't say that uh, the resurrection is positive evidence for Christianity or that, say, the problem of evil is negative evidence against it. Um, so that's also, I think, a significant challenge. So these are some of my key objections that I would um, put forward in terms of uh, presuppositionalism and why I just simply don't buy it as, as a methodology. Mm, that's great. Thank you, Jonathan. I really like your distinction where we look at like um, talking about like, say we say that like bachelors are by definition like they're unmarried. Um, it's like there can't be a married bachelor. That's just like a straightforward contradiction. Um, whereas if we see something like Christianity is false, it's not going to be that same kind of straightforward con contradiction, which is going to at least kind of shed some light on seeing how we could see how presuppositional apologetics potentially could fail because like Christianity, like at least epistemically could be false. Whereas like saying that like an unmarried or a married, a married bachelor exists, like that's just like, that's impossible. Um, so yeah, I think that's a great challenge. Yeah, it so would be nice. Would... It would be nice if I could demonstrate the truth of the Nicene Creed with the law of non-contradiction. <laughs> Unfortunately, there's <laughs> an argument out there, so we have to appeal to evidence instead. You could shut down like all of apologetics in like one day. You just get that creed done, and boom, we're done. Pack up, next project. So, um, so let's talk about the reformed epistemology. So you hinted at this with like Planning and Craig. So like, um, why do you think reformed epistemology is going to fall short, Jonathan? 
Yeah, so reformed epistemology essentially argues that one can be justified, in, and typically a reformed epistemologist will prefer to use the word warrant rather than justification. So um, uh, Alvin Plantinga will talk about warranted Christian belief. And they would argue that Christian belief is warranted wholly apart from argument and evidence by the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. The problem, though, is that that could work in principle, but it doesn't seem to me that a veridical experience of the Holy Spirit is normative for Christians. So I, I don't have any experience that I would consider to be veridical. That's not to say others haven't. I don't know. I don't share their experience. Uh, but as far as my epistemology is concerned, I have to appeal to exclusively public evidence simply because I don't have that uh, any, any sort of internal experience that I would consider to be veridical. Uh, I, I also find that uh, people like Plantinga and others don't do a very good job of responding to the obvious objection, which often comes up. How do you distinguish the so-called veridical inner witness from the experience that would be claimed by a Mormon, for example, who um, in Moroni 10.4 in the Book of Mormon speaks about the, the burning in the bosom that Mormons are supposed to experience when they pray, which is the confirmation that the Book of Mormon is true. And there's overwhelming evidence from various disciplines, including archaeology, that show that the Book of Mormon is false. And so uh, what um, someone like Alvin Plantinga will typically, how, how the, he will respond to that is to say, well, in the case of Mormonism, there are defeaters that override that uh, mystical experience, the burning in the bosom. The problem, though, is that if the veridical inner witness um, or so-called so veridical inner witness um, leads Mormons to a false belief, which we can independently show is false, then that should reduce our confidence in that epistemology for ourselves too. So for those reasons, I, I, I just don't find that to be a particularly persuasive epistemology unless one genuinely has such a veridical experience, which speaking for myself, I don't. Maybe other people do, but I, I certainly don't in my own experience. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So yeah, so with like reformed epistemology, like the question is like, it's like how are we gonna differentiate, differentiate between like a Mormon saying like they've experienced God versus a Muslim versus like an evangelical Christian? Like we're gonna have that kind of difficulty in trying to say like which like worldview is actually true if like they're all gonna have these kinds of experiences. Is that what you're getting at? Exactly right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how do we distinguish the the Christianist experience from the Mormons burning in the bosom, um, or from uh, any other religious system. It seems to me that it's difficult to qualitatively tell those apart. And so at the end of the day, we really have to appeal to public evidence uh, unless one has a, a particularly veridical, tangible experience, which I don't think is normative for Christians. There are probably some people out there that do have that sort of experience. I just know that I'm not one of them. And it doesn't seem to me, to, it doesn't seem to me that that is a normative experience for a Christian. Mm -hmm. Okay, so one more different uh, kind of method is the classical apologetics. Um, so, like, what is we talked about? What is classical apologetics? Like, why do you think it's going to fall short um, compared mm. to evidentialism? Sure. So, classical apologetics basically uh, only differs from evidentialism in a subtle way, namely that they, uh, classical apologist is going to want to insist that we have to demonstrate that God exists before we move on to demonstrating that specifically Christian theism is true or that God raised Jesus from the dead and so forth, because uh, you can't appeal to God as the best explanation for the uh, data uh, concerning the resurrection 
unless we already have reason to think that God exists. And um, I, I don't I don't think that that is needed because um, a lack of demonstrate a lack of independent demonstration that God exists is not necessarily tantamount to a demonstration that God does not exist. And so the prior probability, even if it's very low, it's non-zero. And any prior probability that's non-zero, in other words, doesn't entail some sort of logical contradiction, can in principle be overcome with sufficient evidence. And so you could in principle adduce sufficient evidence to show that Jesus rose from the dead, even if you don't have independent reason to think that God exists. I, I would also argue that there, there could be in principle, and I would argue there are in fact, other arguments besides the resurrection, which are positively relevant to the prior or intrinsic probability of God raising Jesus from the dead, such as the trilemma argument, the argument from messianic prophecy, the argument from the conversion of the Apostle Paul, the argument from contemporary miracles that Craig Keener and Robert Larimer and others have written on, uh, the argument from the, the survival of the nation visual against all odds and so forth. And so those arguments in, taken in an aggregate are positively relevant to our assessment of the prior probability of Jesus' resurrection um, as a special um, act of God, independent of any considerations for theism more broadly that one might adduce from uh, the cosmological argument, fine-tuning argument, biological design, and so forth. Um, I'd also argue that there's an asymmetry in the sense that um, an independent demonstration of theism only confers a, a positive um, impact on the prior probability of the resurrection, whereas evidence for the resurrection confers a much bigger impact on the uh, prior of theism. And the reason for that is, uh, this is an analogy that Lydia McGrew has given. Imagine that um, I, um, let, let's take the hypothesis that some random individual, uh, let's call him Zach, exists. Um, okay, so what's the probability that, what, what's the prior probability that um, I will receive an email from uh, Zach tomorrow afternoon? Well, given that I already have reason to think that this individual exists, that does raise the prior probability somewhat that I will receive an email from this individual tomorrow afternoon relative to what it would have been had I no reason to think that this person existed. But it's only minimally relevant. It doesn't really raise it a huge amount. Whereas if I do in fact receive an email from Zach tomorrow afternoon, that is hugely relevant to the uh, to my assessment of the of the probability that Zach actually exists. So there's an there's an asymmetry there. Um, so I, I think that one can start with the resurrection and actually adduce arguments for the resurrection in support of the proposition of theism, even in the absence of independent lines of evidence for theism. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, one thing to help me in thinking about this, Jonathan, is like, so like under a classical like apologetic method, like if you can't establish God exists, um, then you, you really can't, or you're gonna have a really hard time arguing for like the resurrection. Um, but like when we have evidentialism, we can say like, hey, maybe the problem of evil looks really bad. And like, there's a really um, strong case against God's existence. But you can still independently like our resurrection, um, accounting for like the low prior of like God existing or something, but saying like, hey, here's all this evidence supporting the resurrection. So like, even if we can't show that God exists through like natural theology, we can make a very strong case for the resurrection. Okay, that's great. So what I'd love to do now with the next bit of this is just like explore some objections to evidentialism. Um, mm -hmm. So one thing that I wonder is like, does evidentialism like remove the need for faith? 
Um, so obviously like along with like evidentialism, um, you know, you can use things like Bayes theorem to try to like figure out like what's the exact like, probability of like God existing or like Jesus rising from the dead. Like Swinburne's famous because he gets to like, it's like 97 or 98% chance of the resurrection I believe is what Swinburne says in his book. Um, so one of the things I wondered is like, well, does this take away the need for faith? Like, are we turning like the Christian faith, the Christian mystery into like um, mathematical like calculations? So like, what do you think? Like does evident evidentialism like remove the need for like faith as a christian yeah so i think that there's a common misconception about what faith is i think it's a mistake to talk about a belief requiring faith uh, rather faith is either justified or it's not justified uh, and the extent to which faith is justified should be directly correlated with or directly um portion to the available evidence that we have. Um, so the, the more evidence that I have for a proposition being true, the more inclined I am to exercise faith in that proposition. In the same way that so when, when I step on an airplane, I'm, in, I'm entrusting myself to, to the pilot and the engineering and so forth of that plane. And the more reason I have to think that flying is safe, the more inclined I am to actually get on an airplane and exercise faith in it. And I think it's exactly the same thing with Christianity. I think that the evidence for Christianity is, is quite overwhelming. Uh, and, but, but faith is not simply um, believing in a proposition, not simply intellectually assenting to Christianity being true. Rather, it's committing yourself to it. Now, in terms of the erroneous definition of faith, there are there are a couple of Bible passages we'll typically appeal to to try to argue that faith is blind or that faith is something that should be embraced in the absence of evidence or contra or in the, the face of evidence to the contrary or, or what have you. One of those texts is Hebrews eleven one, which says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen, and. When you examine the, the context of Hebrews 11, we quickly discover that what the author is saying is quite the opposite of what he's often portrayed as saying, or he's often re represented as saying. He's saying that faith is trusting God with his future as yet unrealized promises in view of his past faithfulness. And if you, if you look at the great hall of faith fame, if you will, in Hebrews 11, we discover that that is the pattern that we find. People trust God with his future as yet unrealized promises in view of his past faithfulness, which provides evidence that justifies them trusting God with his future promises they haven't seen fulfilled yet. So to take an analogy, a man on his wedding day trusts his, his spouse to perform her wedding vows, not because he's seen her perform the wedding vows yet. They haven't, they haven't had a chance to fulfill them yet. He hasn't seen it as yet future. Um, but nonetheless, he trusts her to do so because of his past experience of her integrity and faithfulness, which is evidence that informs his faith in his spouse. And I think that's exactly what's going on in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Uh, the other text that sometimes comes up is John 20, verse 29, where Thomas has just uh, requested to see the prints of the nails that went through Jesus' hands and feet and the spear wind from Jesus' side. And um, in verse 29, Thomas says, to, uh, sorry, verse 28, uh, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. In verse 29, Jesus says to Thomas, because you've seen, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so there's another text that sometimes people have refer, appealed to to justify uh, the view that faith is blind. Uh, and 
I, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying there either. In fact, um, looking at just John's gospel, we find uh, just in that very same chapter, um, uh, right uh, in verse uh, 30, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, it's a witness statement to Jesus. Miracles are supposed to provide evidence that give you confidence in his messianic identity. Uh, also, G um, uh, I mean, the very word sign uh, indicates that these are supposed to be authenticating witnesses to Jesus' uh, identity. Um, Jesus also in in John 2, to take one example, um, he's asked after he cleanses the temple, what miraculous sign do you show us to prove your authority to do these things? Verses 18, verse 18 and verse 19, he says, destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. And of course, he's speaking about the temple of his body. So he's arguing the resurrection from the dead is the evidence of his messianic identity. So I think Jesus does come into us an evidence-based faith. But what though is he saying in John 20, verse um, 29. Well, I think that he's simply chiding Thomas for not having believed in the in the presence of sufficient evidence, right? He'd seen the miracles Jesus performed during his during the past few years that he'd spent with Jesus. He'd uh, he, he, he had testimonies to the resurrection from the other disciples, individuals whom he had reason to trust. And so he already had what ought to have been rationally sufficient evidence to conclude that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Um, he had the scriptures, of course, which testify to the resurrection as after 310. Jesus himself had forecasted his resurrection on multiple occasions and so on. Um, and so God doesn't take well to people demanding more than what ought to have been rationally sufficient evidence. And I think that's what's going on in Thomas's case. So I don't think that it's commending a blind faith there either. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, I think that is great. And I think looking at the apostles is super helpful because you can look and see how like um like they have like they've been given evidence but they still also need to like respond in faith and like you said um the issue is really like they've been given like sufficient evidence to like really believe this but then they like they still don't have that faith so i think that's great um one question i had jonathan listening to what you said is like is there a certain like credence or amount of data that you need to like have faith so one of the things i've been thinking about recently is like um to be like a committed christian do you need a certain like uh like doxastic level maybe i guess you could say um like to believe in god like do you need to have like a credence of like 50.1 percent or like 50 percent or 49.9 because I, I think when it gets to the numbers it gets really tricky so when we're looking at like um the evidence we need to like appropriately respond in faith like how do you understand that i i don't think that humans are computers in the sense i, I don't <laughs> think it's like the best approach to assign like a particular credence level in terms of a probability like i'm 94.7 percent sure uh, that christianity is true I, mm -hmm. I just don't think that humans really think like that uh, at a practical level uh, i i so I, I wouldn't put a value on my confidence rather i would just say that i'm tremendously confident christianity is true because it this way i'm not losing sleep over whether i'm wrong i, I think that the evidence is is really quite compelling uh so i i think that in order to rationally have faith in Christ, one should be confident in the messianic self-claims of Jesus, his resurrection from the dead and so forth. But uh, I, I wouldn't suggest trying to put a precise number on it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, I think that's really helpful. And I like I feel the same way. Like, I think that it's really hard to put numbers on like your, your credences because it's just it gets really tricky. Um, so do you think like, do you think though that like you might like you need that belief to have faith? Because like, what if someone's like, hey, like, you know, like there's some good reasons to think God exists, but I just, I don't know. I have a really hard time seeing it. Um, 
and, you know, obviously like the answer is like, you know, you can say like you commit and live in it kind of like a take on Pascal's wager. But, like, do you think that like to have that proper faith, do you need to like have like see Christian at least as like more plausible than not? Yeah, I, I, I do think you would need to see it as more plausible than not. Um, um, I, I certainly, um, I mean, if I wasn't a Christian and I had a credence level of say, um, you know, let's, to use a numerical system, even though I suggested that's mm-hmm. not, perhaps not the best system, suggest, supposing that you had a credence level like 10% or 20% confidence in Christianity, that would certainly cause me to lose sleep. <laughs> yeah. and I, think that it, I think that it should drive investigation. If it's non-obvious that there's nothing to the Christian claim, it should spurn you on to investigate Christianity and the evidence for it almost to the same extent that it would that that you would be driven to do so if you were very nearly convinced of its truth. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I I I I don't think I would be a Christian if I was less than fifty percent confident that it was true, but I would certainly lose sleep over it, and I would certainly be compelled to investigate more carefully, more thoroughly. And I'm confident that anyone who does, in fact, put in the requisite work to investigate the evidence for Christianity, to give themselves a fair and balanced assessment of the pertinent data, will, in the long run, if one is trying to be objective and fair, come to find Christianity to be true and well-supported. Um, mm. so. Yeah, I think that's great. Thanks, Jonathan. So another thing, one of the things I'm wondering is like, so like does evidentialism require that even people like uninterested in apologetics, like examine the evidence for Christianity? Because, you know, there's a lot of people like in the pews or at church that are committed Christians and like really sold out to like living like Jesus. And like you can say even like a lot of like pastors and things like this, um, but they're not really interested in like, say, like apologetics, like philosophy or science, like the relationship between science and faith, things like this. So is your like religious epistemology, do you think it means that like everyone should like study the evidence for Christianity or like where do you, how do you see that fitting in? I, I do, but at different levels. I mean, I don't think everyone is necessarily called to be a scholar. Uh, so not everyone needs to dig into it at the same level. There's also, uh, I, um, sometimes I get asked, you know, doesn't your epistemology mean that uh, if, if you are, um, if, if you haven't you know, done a lot of research in apologetics and you're irrational in being a Christian. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. Uh, I think that one can have a tacit or implicit rational justification for Christian faith, even if one couldn't uh, give an explicit account of it. So, um, for instance, I think that um, I think that people can have a tacit or implicit rational justification that God exists simply from looking at the created order and observing uh, the incredible designoid features of, say, the human body or uh, an uh, embryonic development or looking at um, the night sky and a, and a starry night and so forth and observing that the, um, the, the order of nature doesn't seem to be the result of chance and physical necessity. There seems to be a mind involved uh, there. And even if they wouldn't be able to get into a, get, you know, do a public debate with um, Graham Oppie or something like that, they would nonetheless ha- still be rationally justified. And hopefully over time, um, as one matures in the Christian life, uh, what was at first in seed form or the, this implicit or tacit, tacit rational justification can become more and more explicit over time. And I think it is one aspect of Christian maturity. Um, I, and in terms of the biblical text, I don't think it's quite as obvious immediately that Christianity is true. I think it is immediately obvious that God exists um, from, from nature. But uh, I think that you can even have that sort of tacit or implicit rational justification from studying the scriptures as well. If people read, for example, 
prophetic text like Isaiah 53 um, and they see you know, Jesus there even if they couldn't do a debate with Rabbi Tobias Singer because um, uh, there, there, and there's also uh, features of the New Testament that um, ha that have uh, hallmarks of verisimilitude you might come across for instance the criterion of embarrassment or you might notice unexplained allusions in the text or um, the, the way the, the ways that different um, texts concerning an event overlap and dovetail and interlock with one another in ways that are surprising on a non-reportage model and so forth. And so I think you can have a, rash, a rational tacit justification for um, Christianity, even if you couldn't give a, um, an explicit account of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, yeah, I think that's good. So one more thing I'm wondering about, Jonathan, is like, how does an evidentialist case for God, how's it going to differ than like other methods of like apologetics? Like, um, like what if you're like making a case for like these, I'm like, is it going to look differently than like the classical, obviously it's going to look different, like a preset method. Um, like, but how does it look different in an evidentialist perspective when you're making like a case for God? Um, you mean relative to classical method? Yeah, I guess classical method. Cause I mean, th I think precept is pretty obvious. Yeah. It's different. So yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, sometimes it doesn't look that different. I mean, the only subtle difference is that I have no qualms about starting the conversation by appealing to the evidence for the resurrection. I don't need to go through the arguments for theism before I can get to the arguments for Christianity. Or, it, or it, it, theism doesn't even need to be a, a starting point. Uh, it doesn't even need to be common ground with my conversation partner. Uh, the, the resurrection itself can be justification for theism. Uh, so that, that would be the only major difference between uh, classical and evidentialism. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So do you think that, like, obviously, like, there's different, like, even, like, within these methods, like, other ways of arguing for God. So like, if you ever listen to a William, like, Craig Gray debate, which I'm sure, like, everyone listening to this has, um, you know, he usually, like, brings out, like, his, like, four or five arguments with, like, premises and conclusions that follow. Um, and they lead to, like, the conclusion that you can't escape, that, like, God exists. Like, if the premises are true and, like, Craig's Kalam and you follow it from, like, first cause to God, like, God exists. And that's, like, that's it. It doesn't really matter if there's other arguments, if his argument would hold. So do you think like that kind of approach is like the best approach for like arguing for like God or the resurrection or do, would you be more inclined to like, obviously Swinburne has a different route. Where we're going to look at things like more from the light of like Bayes theorem and things like that. Mm. So like, how do you, like, how would you make a case for God? What do you think the best way to go is? Yeah. I'm, I'm more um, aligned with the sort of approach taken by Richard Swinburne, uh, which is to take a more inductive or probabilistic approach to making the case mm -hmm. for, theism more broadly and Christianity more particularly. Uh, I, I, I'm not a fan of deductive syllogisms like those that Will and Craig likes to adduce in his debates um, on the Kalam and the fine-tuning argument and so forth. Uh, I, I mean, a, a deductive syllogism is only as good as the premises that you feed in. And since the premises are almost always uncertain, I prefer to make the uncertainty explicit by presenting the argument in probabilistic or inductive terms uh, and making a more modest expression of the argument. I, I also think that the deductive formulation of some of these arguments can give the misleading impression that one has to independently justify theism with each of the arguments, which is not necessarily the case. A very common mistake that atheists make is that they will evaluate, say, the cosmological argument, find it to be inconclusive, and move on to the fine-tuning argument, find it to be inconclusive, maybe there's a multiverse or something like that, mm -hmm. and then they'll move on to origins of life arguments, find them to be inconclusive, and so on. And they won't stop to 
ponder whether perhaps even if all the arguments taken individually are non-sufficient, the arguments taken in aggregate could be in principle. And I would argue that um, you know, I, I'm not committed as a Christian to showing that each of the arguments taken individually is sufficient to justify Christianity or theism more broadly. Rather, the arguments taken in aggregate are surely sufficient. Uh, so I think that's a misleading impression that one can sometimes get. William and Craig also sometimes makes a probabilistic blunder when he'll say things like, um, provided that each of the premises are more pl pr uh, plausibly true than false, the conclusion necessarily follows. And that's not the case at all. So for example, supposing that you have a two-premise syllogism, well, let's, let's take the cosmological argument as an mm -hmm. example. Supposing that you've got you know, your first premise, everything which begins to exist as a cause, let's say that we're 60% sure that's true. Second premise, the universe began to exist. Let's suppose that we're 60% sure that's true. Well, the minimum confidence that we can justify for the conclusion that the universe had at the beginning, just based on that argument and those um, probabilities for the premises, is 20%. We can't, uh, we, that's the, min the minimum uh, probability, the minimum confidence we can assign to the conclusion is only 20%. Um, so it's, it's not the case that if each of the premises is more plausibly true than not, the conclusion necessarily follows. The conclusion actually could be less than 50% probably true, um, even in, in that case. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Because like, if you have like, say, say you have a three premise argument with the conclusion that follows that like, God exists, and like, say that like, there's an 80% chance that like, each three of the premises is true, I have to do my math. Um, you're not looking like it's not like the conclusion is eighty percent true. Probably being true, yeah. it's eight times eight sixty four percent times eighty percent. I don't. Know. It's some number that I can't think of off the top of my head. I gave myself too hard of a math problem. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that I think that's right. So I'm curious because you talked about in the beginning, like a lot of your works in biology, Jonathan, like professional work, and then, like you're involved with like the Discovery Institute and things like this. A lot of the times, and like I'm not nearly as well read at all in intelligent design as you are, like not, not even close. But a lot of the times when I've interacted with intelligent design, I've kind of got the impression that the arguments are something along the lines of like, um, this hypothesis is more expected, like there's like a designer, um, or like these things like have the impression of design, um, like complexity comes from minds or something like that. And like, or in reverse, like neo-Darwinese, like I feel like I, whenever I read ID, I hear neo-Darwinianism so much, or Darwinism. Um, it says it can't explain this process um, for whatever reason. To me, that seems more like Craig's method where we're trying to like get like, um, it's either this or that, than like a probabilistic method. Do you think I'm right, wrong? What, what do you um, think? I, I, I mean, that's not the way that I would express the argument. Uh, and I do mm -hmm. think the majority of ID proponents, I don't think, would express it that way. The way that I would express it is in Bayesian terms. So mm -hmm. I would argue that certain features of biology such as the functionally specific information content uh, um, along the, the sugar phosphate backbone of the DNA molecule, for example, is more probable given the supposition that a mind was involved than given the falsehood of that hypothesis. And therefore, mm. it tends to confirm the design hypothesis. Uh, mm. And uh, um, and then you, you, there's other features such as irreducibly complex systems, for example, uh, which require multiple codependent changes in order to realize. And natural selection only, of course, preserves, uh, ensures the, the survival of the fittest, not the arrival of the fittest. And so you have to appeal to a lot of chance to get these mutually codependent mutations to occur. And 
Um, and and, and the, the, there's, of course, the, the origins of developmental pathways where you have to visualize a complex end goal and minds are much better at visualizing complex end goals and bringing everything together to realize those end goals than stochastic ungated processes that can't visualize complex endpoints. Uh, when we observe systems where you have higher level objectives that are accomplished by multiple sub-functions have to work together in unison to achieve that higher level objective. I mean, these are the sorts of things that are not particularly surprising, given the hypothesis that a mind was involved, but are wildly surprising on the falsity of that hypothesis. A common mistake that people make, by the way, is to, is to suppose that in order for a theory, a hypothesis like ID to be supported by, the, by evidence, it needs to make uh, strong predictions. And this is simply false epistemologically. Tim McGrew gives this analogy, which I think is good, which is suppose that you're hiking in a forest and you're well away from civilization, roads, and so forth. And you come across a rundown shack that, or, or a cabin in the forest. And at first blush, it doesn't appear that there's anyone inhabiting this cabin. And so you, you, want, you go over to inspect um, to find out if there's anyone there and you open the door and on the table is a cup of Earl Grey tea, which is still steeping. And there's a tea bag inside the cup and it's not at room temperature, it's still steeping. And you might wonder, okay, so on the hypothesis that might, the, 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 and the hypothesis that the cabin is in fact inhabited, how likely is it that I would find this cup on the table that has specifically Earl Grey tea on it that, that's still steeping. Well, it's, it's less, I mean, it's, we, we can't put an exact figure on how probable that would be, but it seems that it's quite improbable on the hypothesis that it's inhabited. However, it's more probable that you would find that on, um, on the hypothesis that is inhabited than it is on the falsity of that hypothesis. So it doesn't need to be a prediction that has a probability of more than 50%. It just needs to be more probable on the hypothesis than on the falsity thereof. Uh, and therefore, it would tend to confirm the hypothesis, in fact, overwhelmingly confirm the hypothesis that the cabin is inhabited. And likewise, the same is true with respect to what we find in biological organisms. Even if it's even if the, the sorts of features that we find, information content, uh, irreducible complex, nanotechnology, and so forth, were improbable on the hypothesis of design, it's still far more probable on the hypothesis of design than it is on the falsity thereof. Because we know in every realm of experience, the information content comes from conscious minds, not from unguided processes. Likewise, for uh, higher level functions performed by multiple um, well-matched interacting subcomponents and so forth. So does that make sense? Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, I think that's great. And I like um, the way you talked about saying like th this idea, like whatever it is in maybe like biological complexity or something is more expected in like the design hypothesis than some other hypothesis. So yeah, I think that's great. Um, and I, that, that's my favorite form of like an ID argument. So anything else, Jonathan, you want to say with regards to like evidentialism and apologetics or anything, just leaving it open to you here? Um, no, I mean, I could talk a little bit about uh, the case for the resurrection if you like, because that also relates. Yeah. Uh, I lost your voice there for a minute. I don't know if you're muted or no, you're not muted. So I don't know if your mic's not plugged in. I can't hear you. So I do not know what just happened right there, but I'll write them this time to edit it out. I still can't hear you.
Okay, can you hear me now? Yep, you're back. You're back. So I don't know yeah, how sorry about that. But you're um, good. So yeah, go ahead. Tell me about like how this applies when we're looking at like to the case for the resurrection. Yeah. So the the approach that I take to arguing for the resurrection is the, uh, what what I call the maximal data approach, and that's a term that was coined by my colleague and friend Dr. Lydia McGrew, and it stands in contrast to the to the minimal facts approach to making the case for the resurrection. Um, uh, are, are you familiar with the maximal data perspective? Mm -hmm. A little bit. Yeah. Not like crazy amounts, but like, yeah, I'm familiar with it. Yeah. So basically our critique of the minimal facts approach to the resurrection is that, um, so as, as you know, Gary Habermas likes to limit his, uh, limit the, the, the data set to those facts, which are, first of all, in his judgment, well confirmed by the historical evidence. And secondly, that enjoy a large body of, scholarly support from across the theological spectrum. Um, and one of the problems, though, is when it comes to the appearances fact, which yeah, he's right, it, it, the appearances in some sense is accepted by more than 90% of scholars across the spectrum. When he is pressed on the, um, on, on the counter hypotheses, such as the objective vision hypothesis, for example, what he will appeal to is the implausibility of mass hallucinatory experiences. People don't tend to have shared uh, hallucinations. And the problem though, is that that's no longer a minimal fact by his criteria because uh, the, uh, the group experiences are not part of the minimal fact data set. If we, uh, if we limit, if, if we define minimal fact by the criteria that Habermas uses, um, and so there's a bit of a bait and switch in the approach where he changes his criteria midway through the argument uh, without informing his audience. Uh, it's also uh, it, it, when scholar, it's also not widely accepted by more than 90% of scholars that the experiences were like those described in the Gospels and Acts. Um, and so there's actually quite a wide range of experiences that are consistent with the appearance fact, such as, say, a non-speaking Jesus, or Jesus appears only momentarily and disappears, or one who hovers above the ground. And actually, some experiences might even be disconfirmatory evidence of a bodily resurrection. For instance, if you imagine a Jesus hovering above the ground and people try to touch him and their hands go right through, well, that would be disconfirmatory of a bodily resurrection. So simply having the appearances fact does not necessarily translate into evidence that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. And uh, so that's one concern. Um, a second concern is that um, I think that Habermas tends to overpress how much um, you can get from First Corinthians 15. For instance, I, do, I don't think that First Corinthians 15, 3 through 7, the pre-Pauline creed, uh, can be justifiably dated to within uh, you know, a couple of years of Jesus' death, which Habermas wants to do. Uh, is plausible, but we just don't have enough reason to think that's the case. Um, the, the, the preferred approach that I take then is the maximal data approach, which asserts up front that the Gospels and Acts actually do reflect the testimony of uh, purported eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. And so then we have to assess, okay, why are they um, making the sorts of claims that they do? And when anyone makes any sort of testimonial claim, whether we're talking about sexual assault allegation or witness to a miracle, whatever it happens to be, there are three and only three broad explanatory categories that, purport, that could potentially explain that claim, one being that they lied about it, one being they're honestly mistaken, or one being that they're actually correct. And uh, when we look at the content of the apostles' claim, we find that um, 
it's a sort of set of testimonial claims it's difficult to be honestly mistaken about uh, they involve you know individual sightings uh, and not just individual sightings but group sightings group conversations with jesus long discourses with jesus physical contact with jesus eating breakfast with jesus on the shore of the sea of galilee watching jesus eat broiled fish according um according to um acts one it's extending across a 40-day time period and so on it's the sort of thing that's very difficult to be honestly mistaken about and then when you look at the context of the apostles claim we find that there is a context of, of persecution uh in the early years of the christian movement and so the early apostles then voluntarily underwent and endured sufferings and labors and dangers and hardships and persecutions and in some cases martyrdom on account of their testimony of christ's resurrection and that goes a long way towards establishing their sincerity in, in that claim. And so by showing the incredible implausibility of those two contending hypotheses, namely the apostles lied or that they were honestly mistaken, you in turn show that the most probable or best explanation of the data is that in fact, Jesus rose from the dead. Um, and of course, the, the crucial premise there is that the, uh, the, the witness statements so we find in the Gospels of Acts actually do reflect what was being asserted by those who were purportedly eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. And I think that we can establish that uh, quite well with various lines of internal and external corroborations of very minor and specific details that we find in the Gospel accounts. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that makes sense. So, yeah, I think that's um, Anything else, Jonathan, you want to say? We talked about, like, the case for the resurrection um the case for god and like it seems like in both of these like we're, we're adding evidential chips looking at things that are expected on um, your like resurrection or god existing and things that aren't expected on other hypotheses yeah anything else you want to add we, we could talk about the common mantra that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence if you like because uh this is <laughs> of course uh, put forward by uh, the, the, that slogan comes comes from carl sagan a uh, famous uh popularizer of astronomy and science uh, but mm -hmm. of course the idea goes all the way back to david hume uh, famous Scottish philosopher. Um, and basically the argument is that one cannot um, justify belief that a miracle has occurred in history because a miracle by its very nature is a, is a very unlikely occurrence. If it wasn't highly improbable, it wouldn't be a miracle. In fact, if it wasn't the least probable explanation, it wouldn't be a miracle. And so the historian, so the argument goes, can never infer a miracle as the best explanation because any other naturalistic contender, no matter how wildly implausible, is still got to be more plausible than the hypothesis that a decaying corpse was, was somehow revived, which flies in the face of uniform repeated experience uh, and, of course, the laws of nature. Now, how would I respond to that? Well, I'd first point out that um, if we take the hypothesis that God has wrought miracles in history as authenticating science, which of course is the claim of both the Old and New Testament, then in order for those miracles to function as signs, they have to recognizably deviate from the normal course of nature. Because if they didn't, they would be robbed of their evidential value as authenticating signs. If it wouldn't be much of a sign if everyone was being raised from the dead on a weekly basis, right? And so the fact that we, the fact that uh, miracles do, in fact, stand out recognizably from the normal course of nature, the way nature normally behaves, can't be taken as a serious blow to the hypothesis that God has used miracles in history in that way. So a frequentist approach is perhaps not the best approach to uh, our assessment of Jesus' resurrection and, and the intrinsic plausibility thereof. Um, we also have other 
there's some good counter examples in science where, for instance, uh, Tim McGurry gives this analogy. Um, in according to certain theories of nuclear physics, um, protons spontaneously decay, and is such a, it's thought to be such a rare event that it's never actually been observed. And yet, because there's, a, um, according to some models of theoretical physics, there's um, there's a, a theoretical basis for supposing that protons can sometimes spontaneously decay. There are tanks that are set up um, deep underground to um, try to detect these instances of spontaneous proton decay, even though it's never been observed. And so obviously you can, in fact, uh, there, there can be considerations other than frequency, which are relevant positively to the intrinsic probability of a given phenomenon. And uh, of course, in this case, it would be underlying theoretical considerations. Now, in the case of Jesus' resurrection, I would argue that even if it's the case, which I'm prepared to grant, that the intrinsic probability of God raising any old Joe Blow from the dead is quite small. God doesn't seem to be in the business generally of raising people from the dead. It could be the case, and I would argue it is the case, that there are other independent considerations in Jesus' case that mean that his that the, the intrinsic probability of God performing a miracle in his case are better than in the case of some random individual. Such as, mm -hmm. and, and, and these independent lines of consideration I would draw upon would include the trilemma argument, which says that there's good historical evidence that Jesus actually claimed divine status. That being the case, one of two things is true. Either he was God or he wasn't. And if he wasn't, either he knew he wasn't or he didn't. And there's a very small reference class of individuals that can be honestly mistaken about being the creator of the universe and the God of Israel incarnate. And Jesus doesn't seem to fit that reference class. And the fact that Jesus was willing to get himself crucified on the account of that claim goes a long way towards establishing its sincerity. And so it tends to move the needle in the direction of Jesus' divine messianic identity. Another argument, of course, would be the argument for messianic prophecy. There's many examples one could deduce. One example of that would be, so Isaiah 43 verses 1 and 2 tell us that the Messiah was supposed to be rejected by his own people. And yet, according to Isaiah 42, 6 and Isaiah 49, 6, the Messiah was supposed to bring representatives from all nations to recognize and worship the God of Israel. It's supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, so God's salvation will reach the ends of the earth. But no one besides Jesus has ever accomplished that feat. And that's a very remarkable thing, a messianic claim of being rejected by his own people, and yet nonetheless bring representatives of all nations to recognize the God of Israel. That, again, tends to tip the scales in favor of Jesus' messianic identity. And then you could use other similar lines of argument from messianic prophecy as well. Um, there's also the, the argument from the conversion of Paul and so forth. So there's... there's um, background considerations that bear independently on Jesus' messianic identity and therefore are positively relevant to our assessment of the intrinsic probability of God performing a miracle in Jesus' case. So um, for those reasons and others, I, I don't buy the the argumentum Sagani, which is uh, um, which Tim McGrew named in, in uh, Carl Sagan's honor uh, for that, uh, that argument <laughs> that require extraordinary evidence. The argument is Sagani, I like that. It's a good way of... Um... <laughs> <laughs> giving it a fancy name um but yeah i mean i, I share the same intuitions as you it's just to me it's like well if there's good evidence supporting something then we're on the right track and at best an extraordinary claim we just have a low power probability but if there's a bunch of really good evidence to support it then you know it, it doesn't really matter um so yeah this is great jonathan thank you so much for coming on um i'd be curious like how if people want to like follow you connect with you um things like that how can they do that yeah, so you can find my website, jonathanmcclatchy.com. I also have a YouTube channel, which is just Dr. Jonathan McClatchy. Uh, 
these would be the best places to follow me. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. And if you are a Christian that's struggling with doubts about your faith and you'd like to talk to a professional scholar about your concerns and questions, you can go to talkaboutdoubts.com and get in touch there as well. You can also just pause this YouTube video right now and just look at Jonathan's hat and type that URL into the description and it should hopefully take you to the right place. Um, so yeah, um, Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been such a pleasure and yeah, I've just really enjoyed this conversation. So thank you so much. Thanks so much. Great to be on. Yeah. And thank you everyone for tuning in. Hope you have a good one. If you're new here, I encourage you to subscribe, you like all that fun stuff. And if you value content, we have Patreon, patreon.com slash That's it for today. We'll see you next time and God bless.